Book One, Chapter Eight of The Crossing by Winston Churchill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eight: The Nollichucky Trace. Some to endure and many to quail, some to conquer and many to fail, toiling over the wilderness trail. As long as I live, I shall never forget the morning we started on our journey across the blue wall. Before the sun chased away the filmy veil of mist from the brooks in the valley, the McChesneys, father, mother, and children, were gathered to see us depart. And as they helped us to tighten the pack saddles Tom himself had made from chosen tree forks, they did not cease lamenting that we were going to certain death our scrawny horses splashed across the stream and we turned to see a gaunt and lonely figure standing apart against the sun stern and sorrowful we waved our hands and set our faces towards kentucky tom walked ahead rifle on shoulder then polly ann and lastly i drove the two shaggy ponies the instruments of husbandry we had been able to gather awry on their packs a scythe a spade and a hoe i triumphantly carried the axe it was not long before we were in the wilderness shut in by mountain crags and presently polly ann forgot her sorrows in the perils of the trace choked by briars and grapevines blocked by sliding stones and earth it rose and rose through the heat and burden of the day until it lost itself in the open heights as the sun was wearing down to the western ridges the mischievous sorrel mare turned her pack on a sapling and one of the precious bags burst in an instant we were on our knees gathering the golden meal in our hands polly ann baked journey cakes on a hot stone from what we saved under the shiny ivy leaves and scarce had i spansell the horses ere tom returned with a fat turkey he had shot was there ever such a wedding journey said polly ann as we set about the fire for the mountain air was chill and tom and davy as grave as parsons ye'd guessed one of you was rutherford himself and the other mr boone no wonder he was grave i little realized then the task he had set himself to pilot a woman and a lad into a country haunted by frenzied savages when single men feared to go this season but now he smiled and patted polly ann's brown hand it's one of your own choosing lass said he of my own choosing cried she come davy we'll go back to grandpa tom grinned i reckon the redskins won't bother us till we get by the nollichucky and watauga settlements he said the redskins said polly ann indignant i reckon if one of em did get me he'd kiss me once in a while whereupon tom looking more sheepish still tried to kiss her and failed ignominiously for she vanished into the dark woods if a redskin got you here said tom when she had slipped back it fetch you to nickajack cave what's that she demanded where all the red and white and yellow scalawags over the mountains is gathered he answered and he told of a deep gorge between towering mountains where a great river cried angrily of a black cave out of which a black stream ran 
where a man could paddle a dugout for miles into the rock. The river was the Tennessee, and the place the resort of the Chickamauga bandits, pirates of the mountains, outcasts of all nations, and dragging canoe was their chief. It was on the whole a merry journey, the first part of it, if a rough one. Often Polly Ann would draw me to her and whisper, We'll hold out, Davy, he'll never know. When the truth was that the big fellow was going at half his pace on our account, he told us there was no fear of redskins here, yet when the scream of a panther or hoot of an owl stirred me from my exhausted slumber, I caught sight of him with his back to a tree, staring into the forest, his rifle at his side. The day was dawning. Turnabout's fair, I expostulated. You'll need your sleep, Davy, said he, or you'll never grow any bigger. I thought Kentucky was to the west, I said, and you're making north, for I had observed him day after day. We had left the trails. Sometimes he climbed a tree, and again he sent me to the upper branches, whence I surveyed a sea of treetops waving in the wind, and looked onward to where a green velvet hollow lay nestling on the western side of a saddle-backed ridge. North! said tom to polly ann laughing the little devil will beat me at woodcraft soon i north davy i'm hunting for the nolichucky trace that leads to the watauga settlement it was wonderful to me how he chose his way through the mountains once in a while we caught sight of a yellow blaze in a tree made by himself scarce a month gone when he came southward alone to fetch polly ann Again the tired roan shied back from the bleached bones of a traveller, picked clean by wolves. At sundown, when we loosed our exhausted horses to graze on the wet grass by the streams, Tom would go off to look for a deer or turkey, and often not come back to us until long after darkness had fallen. Dave, you'll take care of you, Polly Ann, he would say as he left us. And she would smile at him bravely and say, I reckon I can look out for Davy a while yet. But when he was gone, and the crooning stillness set in, broken only by the many sounds of the night, we would sit huddled together by the fire. It was dread for him, she felt, not for herself. And in both our minds rose red images of hideous foes skulking behind his brave form as he trod the forest floor. Polly Ann was not the woman to whimper. And yet I have but dim recollections of this journey. It was no hardship to a lad brought up in woodcraft. Fear of the Indians, like a dog shivering with the cold, was a dead-ended pain on the border. Strangely enough, it was I who chanced upon the Nollichucky Trace, which follows the meanderings of that river northward through the Great Smoky Mountains. It was made long ago by the southern Indians as they threaded their way to the hunting lands of Kentucky and shared now by the indian traders the path was redolent with odors and bright with mountain shrubs and flowers the pink laurel bush the shining rhododendron and the grape and plum and wild crab the clear notes of the mountain birds were in our ears by day and the music of the water falling over the ledges mingled with that of the leaves rustling in the wind lulled us to sleep at night 
High above us, as we descended, the gap, from naked crag to timber-covered ridge, was spanned by the eagle's flight. The virgin valleys, where future generations were to be born, spread out and narrowed again, valleys with a deep carpet of cane and grass, where the deer and elk and bear fed unmolested. It was perchance the next evening that my eyes fell upon a sight which is one of the wonders of my boyish memories. The trail slipped to the edge of a precipice, and at our feet the valley widened. Planted amidst giant trees on a shining green lawn that ran down to the racing Nollichucky was the strangest house it had ever been my lot to see, of no shape, of huge size and built of logs, one wing hitched to another by dog alleys, as we called them, and from its wide stone chimneys the pearly smoke rose upward in the still air through the poplar branches. Beyond it a setting sun gilded the cornfields, and horses and cattle dotted the pastures. We stood for a while staring at this oasis in the wilderness, and to my boyish fancy it was a fitting introduction to a delectable land. "'Glory be to heaven!' exclaimed Polly Ann. "'It's Nollichucky Jack's house,' said Tom. "'And who may he be?' said she. "'Who may he be?' cried Tom. "'Captain John Sevier, king of the border, and I reckon the best man to sweep out redskins in the Watauga settlements. "'Do you know him?' said she. I was chose as one of his scouts when we fired the Cherokee hill towns last summer, said Tom with pride. There was blood and thunder for you. We went down the great warpath which lies below us, and when we was through there wasn't a corn shuck or a wigwam or a war post left. We didn't harm the squaws nor the children, but there weren't no prisoners took. When Nolly Chucky Jack strikes, I reckon it's more like a thunderbolt nor anything else. "'You think he's at home, Tom?' I asked, fearful that I should not see this celebrated person. "'We'll soon learn,' said he, as we descended. "'I heard he was a-going to punish them Chickamauga robbers by a nickajack.' Just then we heard a prodigious barking, and a dozen hounds came charging down the path at our horses' legs, the roan shying into the truck-patch. A man's voice, deep, clear, compelling, was heard calling. Bye, Laura, Ripper! I saw him coming from the porch of the house, a tall, slim figure in a hunting shirt that fitted to perfection, and cavalry boots. His face, his carriage, his quick movement and stride filled my notion of a hero, and my instinct told me he was a gentleman born. "'Why, bless my soul, it's Tom McChesney,' he cried, ten paces away, while Tom grinned with pleasure at the recognition. "'But what have you here?' "'A wife,' said Tom, standing on one foot. Captain Sevier fixed his dark blue eyes on Polly Ann with approbation, and he bowed to her very gracefully. "'Where are you going, ma'am?' may I ask, he said. "'To Kentucky,' said Polly Ann. "'To Kentucky?' cried Captain Sevier, turning to Tom. Egad, then, you've no right to a wife, and to such a wife. And he glanced again at Polly Ann. Why, McChesney, you never struck me as a rash man. Have you lost your senses to take a woman into Kentucky this year? 
So the fort's still be in trouble, said Tom. Trouble? cried Mr. Sevier, with a quick fling of his whip at an unruly hound. Harrodstown, Boonesboro, Logan's Ford, and St. Asaph's, they don't dare stick their noses outside the stockades. The Indians have swarmed into Kentucky like red ants, I tell you. Ten days ago, when I was in the Holston settlements, Major Ben Logan came in. His fort had been shut up since May. They were out of powder and lead, and somebody had to come. How did he come? As the wolf lopes, nay, as the crow flies over Crag and Ford, Cumberland, Clinch, and all, forty miles a day for five days, and never saw a trace, for the war parties were watching the wilderness road, and he swung again towards Polly Ann. You'll not go to Kentucky, ma'am. You'll stay here with us until the redskins are beaten off there. He may go if he likes. I reckon we didn't come this far to give out, Captain Sevier, said she. You don't look to be the kind to give out, Mrs. McChesney, said he. And yet it may not be a matter of giving out, he added more soberly. This mixture of hardiness and gravity seemed to sit well on him. Surely you've been enterprising, Tom. Where in the name of the Continental Congress did you get the lad? I married him along with Polly Ann, said Tom. That was the bargain, and I reckon he was worth it. I'd take a dozen to get her, declared Mr. Sevier, while Polly Ann blushed. Well, well, supper's waiting us, and cider and applejack, for we don't get a wedding party every day. Some gentlemen are here whose word may have more weight and whose attractions may be greater than mine. He whistled to a negro lad who took our horses and led us through the courtyard of the house to the lawn at the far side of it. A rude table was set there under a great tree, and around it three gentlemen were talking. My memory of all of them is more vivid than it might be were their names not household words in the western country. Captain Sevier startled them. My friends, said he, if you have dispatches for Kentucky, I pray you get them ready overnight. They looked up at him, one sternly, the other two gravely. What the devil you mean, Xavier? said the stern one. That, my friend Tom McChesney, is going there with his wife. Unless we can stop him, said Xavier. Stop him, thundered the stern gentleman, kicking back his chair and straightening up to what seemed to me a colossal height. I stared at him, boy-like. He had long iron-gray hair and a creased, fleshy face and sunken eyes. He looked as if he might stop anybody as he turned upon Tom. Who the devil is this Tom McChesney? he demanded. Sevier laughed. The best scout I ever laid eyes on, said he. A deadly man with a deckard, an unerring man at choosing a wife. And he bowed to the reddening Polly Ann and a fool to run the risk of losing her. Tut, tut, said the iron gentleman, who was the famous Captain Evan Shelby of King's Meadows. He'll leave her here in our settlements, while he helps us fight Dragging Canoe and his Chickamauga pirates. If he leaves me, said Polly Ann, her eyes flashing, that's an end to the bargain. You'll never find me more. Captain Sevier laughed again. There's spirit for you, he cried, slapping his whip against his boot. At this another gentleman stood up, a younger counterpart of the first, only he towered higher and his shoulders were broader. 
He had a big-featured face and pleasant eyes that twinkled now, sunken in with fleshy creases at the corners. "'Tom McChesney,' said he, "'don't mind my father. If any man besides Logan can get inside the fort, you can. You remember me?' "'I reckon I do, Mr. Isaac Shelby,' said Tom, putting a big hand into Mr. Shelby's bigger one. "'I reckon I won't soon forget how you stepped out of ranks and took command when the boys was running and turned the tide.' He looked like the man to step out of ranks and take command. "'Fish,' said Mr. Isaac Shelby, blushing like a girl. "'Where would I have been if you and Moore and Finley and the rest hadn't stood em off till we turned round?' By this time the third gentleman had drawn my attention, not by anything he said, for he remained silent, sitting with his dark brown head bent forward, quietly gazing at the scene from under his brows. The instant he spoke they turned towards him. He was perhaps forty, and broad shoulders, not so tall as Mr. Sevier. "'Why do you go to Kentucky, McChesney?' he asked. I give my word to Mr. Harrod and Mr. Clark to come back, Mr. Robertson, said Tom. And the wife? If you take her, you run a great risk of losing her. And if he leaves me, said Polly Ann, flinging her head, he will lose me sure. The others laughed, but Mr. Robertson merely smiled. Faith, cried Captain Sevier, if those I met coming back helter-skelter over the wilderness trace had been of that stripe, they'd have more men in the forts now. With that, the captain called for supper to be served where we sat. He was a widower, with lads somewhere near my own age, and I recall being shown about the place by them. And later, when the fireflies glowed and the Nullachucky sang in the darkness, we listened to the talk of the war of the year gone by. I needed not to be told that before me were the renowned leaders of the Watauga settlements. My hero-worship cried it aloud within me. These captains dwelt on the borderland of mystery, conquered the wilderness, and drove before them its savage tribes by their might. When they spoke of the Cherokees and told how that same Stuart, the companion of Cameron, was urging them to war against our people, a fierce anger blazed within me, for the Cherokees had killed my father. I remember the men, scarcely what they said, Evan Shelby's words like heavy blows on an anvil, Isaac Shelby's, none the less forceful, James Robertson compelling his listeners by some strange power. He was, perchance, the strongest man there, though none of us guessed, after ruling that region, that he was to repeat untold hardships to found and rear another settlement, farther west. But best I loved to hear Captain Sevier, whose talk lacked not force, but had a daring, a humor, a lightness of touch, that seemed more in keeping with that world I had left behind me in Charlestown. Him I loved, and at length I solved the puzzle. To me he was Nick Temple, grown to manhood. I slept in the room with Captain Sevier's boys, and one window of it was of paper smeared with bear's grease, through which the sunlight came all bleared and yellow in the morning. I had a boy's interest in affairs, and I remember being told that the gentlemen were met here to discuss the treaty between themselves and the great Oconostota, chief of the Cherokees, 
and also to consider the policy of punishing once for all dragging canoe and his bandits at chickamauga as we sat at breakfast under the trees these gentlemen generously dropped their own business to counsel tom and i observed with pride that he had gained their regard during the last year's war shelby's threats and robertson's warnings and sevier's exhortations having no effect upon his determination to proceed to kentucky they began to advise him how to go and he sat silent while they talked and finally when they asked him he spoke of making through carter's valley for cumberland gap and the wilderness trail egad cried captain sevier i have so many times found the boldest plan the safest that i have become a coward that way what do you say to it mr robertson mr robertson leaned his square shoulders over the table he may fall in with a party going over he answered without looking up polly ann looked at tom as if to say that the whole continental army could not give her as much protection we left that hospitable place about nine o'clock mr robertson having written a letter to colonel daniel boone shut up in the ford at boonesborough should we be so fortunate as to reach kentucky and another to a young gentleman by the name of george rogers clark apparently a leader there captain sevier bowed over polly ann's hand as if she were a great lady and wished her a happy honeymoon and me he patted on the head and called a brave lad and soon we had passed beyond the cornfield into the wilderness again our way was down the nolichucky past the great bend of it below lick creek and so to the great war-path the trail by which countless parties of red marauders had travelled north and south it led indeed northeast between the mountain ranges although we kept a watch by day and night we saw no sign of dragging canoe or his men and at length we forded the holston and came to the scattered settlement in carter's valley i have since racked my brain to remember at whose cabin we stopped there he was a rough backwoodsman with a wife and a horde of children but i recalled that a great rain came out of the mountains and down the valley we were counting over the powder gourds in our pack when there burst in at the door as wild a man as has ever been my lot to see his brown beard was grown like a bramble patch his eye had a violent light and his hunting shirt was in tatters he was thin to gauntness ate ravenously of the food that was set before him and throwing off his soaked moccasins he spread his scaled feet to the blaze and the steaming odor of drying leather filled the room where be ye from asked tom for answer the man bared his arm and then his shoulder and two angry scars long and red revealed themselves and around his wrist were deep gorges where he had been bound they killed sue he cried sculped her afore my very eyes and they chopped my boy out in the hickory witches and carried him to the greek nation at a place where there was a standing stone i broke loose from three of em and come here over the mountains and i ain't had nothin stranger but berries and chaney briar root for ten days god damn em he cried standing up and tottering with the pain in his feet 
if i can get a deckard will you go back said tom go back he shouted i'll go back and fight em while i have blood in my body he fell into a bunk but his sorrow haunted him even in his troubled sleep and his moans awed us as we listened the next day he told us his story with more calmness it was horrible indeed and might well have frightened a less courageous woman than polly ann imploring her not to go he became wild again and brought tears to her eyes when he spoke of his own wife they tomahawked her ma'am because she could not walk and the baby beside her and i standing by with my arms tied as long as i live i shall never forget that scene and how tom pleaded with polly ann to stay behind but she would not listen to him you're going tom she said yes he answered turning away i gave him my word and your word to me said polly ann he did not answer we fixed on a saturday to start to give the horses time to rest and in the hope that we might hear of some relief party going over the gap on thursday tom made a trip to the store in the valley and came back with a deckard rifle he had bought for the stranger whose name was weldon there was no news from kentucky but the carter's valley settlers seemed to think that matters were better there it was that same night i believe that two men arrived from port chiswell one whose name was chechian was a little man with a short forehead and a bad eye and he wore a weather-beaten blue coat of military cut the second was a big light-colored fleshy man and a loud talker he wore a hunting shirt and leggings they were both the worse for rum they had had on the road the big man talking very loud and boastfully i've heard to go to kentucky said he i've met a parcel of cowards on the road turned back they ain't nothing to be afeard of eh stranger he added to tom who paid no manner of attention to him the small man scarce opened his mouth but said with his head bowed forward on his breast when he was not drinking we passed a dismal crowded night in the room with such companions when they heard that we were to go over the mountains nothing would satisfy the big man but to go with us come stranger said he to tom two good rifles such as we is ain't to be throwed away why do you want to go over asked tom be ye a tory he demanded suspiciously why do you go over retorted riley for that was his name i reckon i'm no more a tory than you where'd you come from asked tom chiswell's mines taken out lead for the army of congress but they ain't excitement enough in it and you said tom turning to chechian and eyeing his military coat i got tired of their damned discipline the man answered surlily he was a deserter look you said tom sternly if you come what i say is law such was the sacrifice we were put to by our need of company but in those days a man was a man and scarce enough on the wilderness trail in that year of seventy seven so we started away from carter's valley on a bright saturday morning the grass glistening over a week's rain the road sodden and the smell of the summer earth heavy 
Tom and Weldon walked ahead, driving the two horses, followed by Chutchin, his head dropped between his shoulders. The big man, Riley, regaled Polly Ann. "'My pluck is,' said he, "'my pluck is to give a redskin no chance. Shoot em down like hogs. It takes a good un to stalk me, ma'am. Upon the Kanawha I've had hand-to-hand -hand fights with em, and made em cry quits.' law exclaimed polly ann nudging me it was a lucky thing we run into you in the valley but presently we left the road and took a mountain trail as stiff a climb as we had yet had polly ann went up like a bird talking all the while to riley who blew like a bellows for once he was silent we spent two, perchance three days, climbing and descending and fording. At night Tom would suffer none to watch save Weldon and himself, not trusting Riley or Cutcheon, and the rascals were well content to sleep. At length we came to a cabin on a creek, the corn between the stumps around it choked with weeds, and no sign of smoke in the chimney. Behind it slanted up in giant steps a forest-clad hill of a thousand feet, and in front of it the stream was dammed and lined with cane. "'Who keeps house?' cried Tom at the threshold. He pushed back the door, fashioned in one great slab from a forest tree. His welcome was an angry whirl, and a huge yellow rattler lay coiled within, his head reared to strike. Polly Ann leaned back. Mercy, she cried, that's a bad sign. But Tom killed the snake, and we made ready to use the cabin that night and the next day, for the horses were to be rested and meat was to be got, as we could not use our guns so freely on the far side of Cumberland Gap. In the morning, before he and Weldon left, Tom took me around the end of the cabin. Davy, said he, i don't trust these rascals can you shoot a pistol i reckoned i could he had taken one out of the pack he had got from captain sevier and pushed it between the logs where the clay had fallen out if they try anything said he shoot em and don't be afraid of killing em he patted me on the back and went off up the slope with weldon polly ann and i stood watching them until they were out of sight about eleven o'clock riley and cutcheon moved off to the edge of a canebrake near the water and sat there for a while talking in low tones the horses were belled and spanzled nearby feeding on the cane and wild grass and polly ann was cooking journey cakes on a stone what makes you so sober davy she said i didn't answer davy she cried be happy while you're young. Tis a fine day, and Kentucky's over yonder. She picked up her skirts and sang, First upon the heel tip, then upon the toe. The men by the canebrake turned and came towards us. You're happy today, Miss McChesney, said Riley. Why shouldn't I be, said Polly Ann. We're all a-going to Kentucky. We're a-going back to Carter's Valley, said Riley in his blustering way. This year ain't as exciting as I thought. I reckon there ain't no redskins nohow. What? cried Polly Ann in loud scorn. You're a-going to desert? There'll be redskins enough by and by, I'll warrant you. 
"'How'd you like to come along of us?' says Riley. "'That ain't any place for women or beyonder. "'Along of you?' cried Polly Ann with flashing eyes. "'Do you hear that, Davy?' "'I did.' Meanwhile the man Cutcheon was slowly walking towards her. It took scarce a second for me to make up my mind. I slipped around the corner of the house, seized the pistol, primed it with a trembling hand, and came back to behold Polly Ann with flaming cheeks facing them. They did not so much as glance at me. Riley held a little back of the two, being the coward. But Cutcheon stood ready like a wolf. I did not wait for him to spring, but taking the best aim I could with my two hands, fired. With a curse that echoed in the crags, he threw up his arms and fell forward, writhing on the turf. "'Run for the cabin, Polly Ann!' I shouted, and bar the door. There was no need. For an instant Riley wavered, and then fled to the cane. Polly Ann and I went to the man on the ground and turned him over. His eyes slid upwards. There was a bloody froth on his lips. "'Davy!' cried she, awe-stricken. "'Davy! You've killed him!' I grew dizzy and sick at the thought, but she caught me and held me to her. Presently we sat down on the door-log, gazing at the corpse. Then I began to reflect, and took out my powder gourd and loaded the pistol. "'What are you doing?' she said. "'In case the other one comes back,' said I. "Pooh," said Polly Ann. "'He'll not come back.' Which was true. I have never laid eyes on Riley to this day. "'I reckon we'd better fetch it out of the sun,' said she, after a while. And so we dragged it under an oak, covered the face, and left it. He was the first man I ever killed, and the business by no means came natural to me. And that day the journey cakes which Polly Ann had made were untasted by us both. The afternoon dragged interminably. Try as we would, we could not get out of our minds the thing that lay under the oak. It was near sundown when Tom and Weldon appeared on the mountainside, carrying a buck between them. Tom glanced from one to the other of us keenly. He was very quick to divine. Where be they? said he. Show him, Davy, said Polly Ann. I took him over to the oak, and Polly Ann told him the story. He gave me one look, I remember, and there was more of gratitude in it than a thousand words. Then he seized a piece of cold cake from the stone. Which trace did he take? he demanded of me. But Polly Ann hung on his shoulder. Tom, Tom, she cried. You bet going to leave us alone again. Tom, he'll die in the wilderness, and we must get to Kentucky. The next vivid thing in my memory is the view of the last barrier nature had reared between us and the delectable country. It stood like a lion at the gateway, and for some minutes we gazed at it in terror from Powell's Valley below. How many thousands have looked at it with sinking hearts? How many weaklings has its frown turned back? There seemed to be engaged upon it the dark history of the dark and bloody land beyond. Nothing in this life worth having is won for the asking, 
and the best is fought for and bled for and died for written too upon that towering wall of white bark in the handwriting of god himself is the history of the indomitable race to which we belong for fifty miles we travelled under it towards the gap our eyes drawn to it by a resistless fascination the sun went over it early in the day as though glad to leave the place and after that a dark scowl would settle there at night we felt its presence like a curse even polly ann was silent and she had need to be now when it was necessary we talked in low tones and the bell clappers on the horses were not loosed at night it was here but four years gone that daniel boone's family was attacked and his son killed by the indians we passed from time to time deserted cabins and camps and some places that might once have been called settlements elk garden where the pioneers of the last four years had been wont to lay in a simple supply of seed corn and irish potatoes and the spot where henderson and his company had camped on the way to establish boonesboro two years before and at last we struck the trace that mounted upward to the gateway itself End of chapter eight